their estimation. But when things start going in the direction that, in their estimation, are not quite so good, praise is just about the most distant thing on their mind. In fact, it's quite the opposite for many people. Things go well. I got that job. I made some money. I got a good doctor's report. I found out that I'll be able to take that cruise after all. Then praise God. But what happens when you don't get that job? You didn't enjoy that financial windfall you were counting on. The doctor's report was not what you wanted to hear. You found out that the cruise was booked. You can't get on. Then what? Far too much of the time, it's at that point that believers turn on God. I had a friend in seminary, great guy, brilliant guy, straight-A student. I went to lunch with him every day, every Thursday, rather, for three years. I looked forward so much to those meetings. It was one of the highlights of my day. And the conversations that we had usually revolved around some aspect of theology or ministry. It was just a wonderful time. But one day, I knew something was wrong. When I got into his car, he was going to drive that day. And he was really worked up about something, really worked up. I can't remember exactly what it was. But I'll never forget what he said. Because as soon as I strapped on my seatbelt, he said, I am really mad at God. I said, really? I said, you serious? He said, yeah, I am just so mad at God. And I said, well, do me a favor, then pull the car over and let me out. I'll walk. <laughs> because I'm not going to drive, I'm not going to ride in a car where the driver is mad at God. I have a wife and three young kids, I told him. They were all under 10 at that time. I don't need to have that kind of discipline coming on me. Of course, he recognized the insanity of what he was saying fairly quickly. We ended up having a real fine time at lunch that day. But it struck me how someone who knew better, someone who was a devotee of Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans, who put God's majesty and his sovereignty on such a pedestal and realized that we need to bow down and worship him, how you could say such a stupid thing. Really, it's a selfish thing, too. It didn't work out the way I wanted it to. So I'm going to turn on God. Not very smart, really, and not very rational. In doing so, one is either assuming that God made a mistake and allowing whatever it was to happen, or that God is somehow evil in allowing it to happen. Either way... If that's your feeling, I don't want to be riding in a motor vehicle with you, whether I have a seatbelt on or not. We're currently studying an episode in David's life that was arguably one of the worst things that ever happened to him. It's almost surely related to discipline for the adultery he committed with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. But instead of getting mad at God, or being disappointed with God, which is just its cousin. David humbly moves ahead in the face of difficulty without complaint and handles the situation with dignity and with confidence in the face of great uncertainty. This time period in David's life is a real paradox. It's a painful period of discipline. But at the same time, it's a period of spiritual greatness, and we don't usually equate those two. 
We usually think when we're going through spiritual discipline that there's no spiritual growth or spiritual greatness at all, but not with David and not this time, and it shows us that it can be for us too. Just because we're under spiritual discipline doesn't mean that our spiritual lives have to be put on hold. And this passage is a wonderful example of that. After being informed that his son Absalom is on his way to Jerusalem in rebellion against him, David knows that he has to flee, and he's got to flee fast. As his loyalists file by, David sits there solemnly, saluting them as they go by and thanking them as they pass by him. And then one man catches his attention, the man by the name of Ittai the Gittite. In verse 19 of, of 2 Samuel chapter 15, we see this narrative. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you're a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will? Return and go back to your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely, wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Therefore David said to Ittai the Gittite, Go and pass over. So Ittai the Gittite passed over with all his men and with all the little ones who were with him. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Ittai, the Gittite, was a Philistine. He was the leader of the Gittite mercenaries that had passed by David in review. And the, the way David puts this, he asks him, why would you, the emphasis there is on the you, why would you, or why would you of all people want to come with me? In other words, thanks, Ittai. Thanks for the thoughtfulness, but this isn't your fight. Sit this one out. There's no need to get involved. I love what he says in verse 20. Mercy and truth be with you. This is the Hebrew phrase, chesed ve'emet. It's a phrase that's used to describe Yahweh himself in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And its Greek equivalent is used to describe Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 17, it, it is actually in John chapter 1, in my view, a very strong attestation of the deity of Christ. That was one of John's purposes in that verse, to show you that Jesus Christ is Yahweh of the Old Testament. So he's exercising, when he says this, he's expressing a strong covenantal saying. When he says, mercy and trust, or hesed ve'emet, be with you. It's almost as he's saying, Yahweh be with you. David is exercising both faith and leadership at this crucial moment. Sure, he could use Ittai and his men. Of course he could. There's fixing to be a battle. David's life's at stake. But in his leadership, David's looking out for Ittai. Is it in Ittai's best interest? to come with David. That's, that was what marks a true leader. A true leader is selfless, not selfish. The more selfish a leader is, the less of a leader they really are. David was a selfless leader, as he demonstrates here. And I want you to keep in mind, too, this is a period of extreme stress for him, extreme pain. 
But yet he's exercising faith and he's exercising leadership. We can learn a lot from David here. I know a lot of us, we get a headache and we blurt out things that we don't want to blurt out or we've got low blood sugar and we say things we don't want to say and, and act like we're having a really bad day. That's nothing compared to what David was having. He was having a really bad day, but he didn't use it as an excuse to put his spiritual life on hold. He's exercising faith in Yahweh and great leadership. In verse 23, while all the country was weeping with a loud voice, this meant all the people that were going with David were weeping with a loud voice, all of his loyalists. All the people passed over. This is through the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and over to the other side. The text says this, The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. The late Catholic scholar, Raymond Brown, fine New Testament scholar, points out that the path that David took in leaving Jerusalem when he is fleeing the oncoming Absalom on this extremely difficult occasion was the very same path that our Lord Jesus himself would take approximately a thousand years later on the night before he was crucified. Extreme stress for both David and his greater son, Jesus Christ. They take the same path. The only difference is David goes up and over the mount. Jesus stops at the Garden of Gethsemane. David escapes. Jesus allows himself to be executed. In the next episode, we find the priest Zadok approaching David with the Levites and with the Ark. Zadok is an interesting guy. Apparently, as he held the priesthood, he, he held this prevailing view that the Ark itself would be very helpful if there was a military engagement. And I can see why he would hold that view. It's been that way in the past. So we read in verses 24 through 29, now behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. And the, Abiathar and Zadok were kind of almost like the co-high priest at that time, both loyal to David. And the king said to Zadok, return the Ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and its habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as it seems good to him. Then the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, your sons Ahimaaz and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. Verse 28, See, I am going to wait at the forge of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar returned the Ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. In the first section that we see tonight, we see Ittai the Gittite and David exercising leadership with regard to Ittai because this is not Ittai's fight. He has Ittai's best interest in mind, so he gives them an opportunity to go back. Here we have a slightly different episode. Zadok is bringing the Ark out of Jerusalem with the understanding, in Zadok's mind, that this ark will in some mysterious, in a mysterious way, because the Shekinah glory would go before him and they would win the battle. But David says, no, that's not the purpose of the ark, to help me out personally. And David says this, something that exhibits great humility in the middle of this great punishment that he's undergoing. So he says, if I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he'll bring me back again. And I'm going to get to see the ark again, and not just the ark, but the tabernacle. I'll get to see it personally, if I find favor, if I find 
mercy him if I find grace with the Lord. But if he should say, if the Lord should say thus, I have no delight in you. I'm finished with you, David. This is his greatness. David doesn't say, well, down with the Lord, or I'm mad at God, or he has no right to do this to me. No, David says, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. If the Lord's finished with me, then he's finished with me. There's no arrogance on David's part here, not at all. He trusted Yahweh to do the right thing. There are going to be things that happen in your life that perplex you. You have no idea why God allowed them to happen. The prophets were that way. Habakkuk, oh Lord, how long are you going to let this happen? It's okay to question how long. It's okay to question why, but it's never okay to question God and his character. That's never okay. I don't care who comes before you and says it or how many people they have listening to them on the radio. It's never okay. Never, never, never. It's okay to question why. Certainly, we're we're not going to understand everything that God does. It's never okay to question God's motives, ever. This is the same God that sent his son to die as a substitute for our sorry tales, and we're going to question him when things don't go the way we think they ought to go, as if we have all the intelligence that we need to figure it all out. I have a hard time keeping my own life straight, much less somebody else's, much less 7 billion people on the planet all at the same time. God's a little bit more intelligent than we are, don't you think? He's a little bit more powerful than we are, don't you think? And he's a lot more good than we are, don't you think? David trusted him. And that's why David could say, let him do to me as it seems good to him. This might be a high point in David's spiritual life on a par when he said to Goliath, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And then the battle is the Lord's. This is a high point for David spiritually. David's instructions to Zadok are twofold. First, he wants the ark returned to Jerusalem. The second relates to the role of Zadok and Abiathar as listening posts to keep David informed as to the situation that is taking place in Jerusalem. He's setting up a network of intelligence. David's attitude, which is the central point of this paragraph, is... Such a contrast to the attitude that so many Christians have today. As I was researching this, sometimes I'll go to the web and I'll Google certain things to see what people are saying in certain blogs. And, and uh, all you got to do is just Google disappointment with God and see what comes up. And you see the most vile things being said about our own Savior. And basically, what most of these people say is, Lord, I'll love you. I'll be happy to love you if you give me what I want and when I want it. Or, the attitude that I have personally heard expressed, God, help me with this problem. But when they didn't get the desired answer, the next response a few months later was, God doesn't exist at all. I'm an atheist. And then the following response after that, after claiming that they're not atheists, was that they're mad at God. Now, which is it? Are you an atheist and God doesn't exist, or are you mad at the God that doesn't exist anymore? It doesn't make sense. That's totally irrational. But that's what we get when we get self-centered. And that's what it is. It's self-centeredness. So, either say that God exists and bow down to him, and recognize him for who he is, 
I just have the courage to say I don't think he exists at all, but don't say he doesn't exist and still be mad at him. I hope you follow me. It doesn't make sense to be mad at something or someone that doesn't exist at all. David doesn't do this. Second, David tells Zadok, really, if you really want to help, what I want you to do is go back to Jerusalem and be my eyes and ears there. You see, David's not giving up. He's retreating, but he hasn't given up. He's not going to commit suicide. As long as there's one little bit of hope that it might work out, he's going to do what he does. And he's a good military commander, so he's going to do what any good military commander is going to do in these circumstances. He sets up an intelligence network. He needs the information. I think this is a perfect example of how we leave things in God's hands. You've heard that phrase, haven't you? We just need to leave it in God's hands. But to leave something in God's hands doesn't imply inactivity. David's leaving this in God's hands, but he still sets up this intelligence network. To leave something in God's hands means that we continue with the functions of life and then leave the results in God's hands. You can't say, I need a job, and I'm going to leave it in God's hands, and you stay in bed all day. You may need a job. You may leave it in God's hands. You get up, you get dressed, you take a shower, you comb your hair, you put on deodorant so that you smell nice, and then you read the one ads. That's still leaving it in God's hands. Somebody may call, you may go for an interview. Well, you leave it in God's hands, but you still go to the interview, and you answer their questions honestly and openly, the best way you can. That's leaving it in God's hands. If you've been told that you have six months to live, it doesn't follow that you crawl up on your couch and stay there for the next six months. I hope you wouldn't as a Christian. Now, sometimes I'm not talking about people that just can't get off the couch because of the, the way they feel. What do you do? You keep on living. Every day you keep on living until God calls your number. Well, that's how I've kind of pictured it in my mind in the last few years. Until your flight is called. And they say, You're now, your flight's now boarded. But until that time, you keep on keeping on. You have no right to quit. If God wanted to quit you to quit, he'd drop you dead right now. The fact that he's giving you time means he wants you to do something with it. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. If you're still here, he wants you to do something with the time that you've got. So inactivity is not a reflection of leaving something in God's hands. Oh, and then comes verse 30. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. And his head was covered and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went in tears. David crosses over the Mount of Olives, crossing most likely very near the same spot that Jesus' feet will return in the triumph of the second advent. David's head is covered, and he's barefoot, symbolizing the shameful exile to which he's embarking. But I want you to notice again, there's no bitterness here. There's no anger, certainly not any anger with God. And we're going to see as we... Look at some passages in the coming weeks. He's not even angry with some of the people that are cursing him on the way. Well, then it gets worse. David's informed that his trusted advisor, Ahithophel, is among the conspirators. Oh, when David heard these words, how it must have cut him to the core. His son's against him, and that's bad enough. That's betrayal enough. But now Ahithophel, is also lined up against him. 
Ahithophel, one of the smartest people in Israel. David knows that Absalom is shrewd. But Absalom's not wise. I think there's a difference between being shrewd and wise. Ahithophel, on the other hand, is very wise. His counsel could mean the end of David if the Lord didn't intervene on David's behalf. You recall that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. She must have felt the betrayal also, because I'm sure it's certain, because the only people left behind were the ten concubines to keep the house. And I don't know if I said this before, but I think the reason David left those ten concubines behind is because he, is, he might have assumed that since they were concubines, Absalom would not mistreat them. Well, he's wrong about that. But Bathsheba's with him, and Bathsheba may have been nearby when she finds out that her own grandfather is part of this conspiracy to kill her husband. And probably not just her husband. If you're going to kill David, you probably have to kill most, if not all, of the loyalists, too. So I'm sure she felt betrayal. But isn't it interesting? That's how this whole thing started, isn't it? Betrayal. Both David... And Bathsheba betrayed Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men, one of his best friends for decades. So it's interesting how the Lord brings it all back around. And now they're suffering betrayal. So David exercises the only option that's open to him at this point. I know he thought it was bad before, but it's really bad now. He prays, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. You know how some prayers are answered immediately and other prayers take time? This one is answered almost immediately. And the answer comes in the form of a person. A fellow by the name of Hushai the Archite. Don't you love the names in this chapter? Ittai the Gittite, Hushai the Archite. Hushai the Archite is one of my favorite characters in all of the Davidic narratives. Let's read about it, starting in verse 32. It happened as David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, that behold, Hushai the archite met him with his coat torn and dust on his head. Hushai the archite is one of those ones that had it right even before it was written, because Ecclesiastes was not written at this time. But Hushai the archite is one of those ones when he had a friend that was in need, he was there for him. When he had a friend that was suffering, he suffered along with him. I, I assume he's also the kind of guy that when he had a friend that was laughing, he'd laugh with him. But now his friend David is weeping, and so Hushai is weeping as well. He is mourning for David, as is evidenced by his torn clothing and the dust that's on his head. Hushai the Archite, a little bit more background on him too, it certainly would appear as though Hushai the Archite was also one of David's trusted advisors, part of his inner circle, along with Ahithophel. So here comes this man, presumably older, Hushai the archite. And David said to him in verse 33, if you pass over with me, then you'll be a burden to me. That's why I think he's a bit older, probably wasn't able to move quite fast enough. Listen, if you come along, I'm going to have to take care of you. I can't wait for you, Hushai. You're going to move too slowly. But, verse 34, if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I've been your father's servant in times past. So I'll now, I will now be your servant. Then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. 
Then in verse 35, and are not Zadok and Abiathar, the priests with you there? In other words, I've set up this intelligence network. So it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall report it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything that you hear. And then the passage, the chapter concludes, So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. One quick note on friendship before I get back to the text itself. Anybody can be your friend when things are going well. Anybody can be your friend when you just won the lottery. But let something negative happen. Let something embarrassing happen to you. And then you're going to see who your friends are. And this was a low point in David's life. Hushai the archite could have run the other way. He could have gone right over to Absalom immediately, saved himself a lot of trouble, but that's not what Hushai the archite was all about. In fact, David is, or God rather, is going to use Hushai the archite to save David, to save his friends. Because Hushai the archite is going to become part of this intelligence network, and he's going to deceive Absalom. In fact, we'll see in a later lesson, not only does he deceive, deceive Absalom, in, in a small way, he deceives him in a big way, so big that Ahithophel knows that his goose is now cooked because of Hushai the archite. Ahithophel goes and hangs himself. We'll see in a future lesson. There's an interesting ethical question here that we want to end with tonight. It's clear that David is asking Hushai to lie on his behalf. So if you don't want to use the word lie, to at least be deceptive on his behalf, which is just a fancy way of saying to lie for him. He's asking him to deceive Absalom. And we have to ask the ethical question, is that right? And I want to say up front that I believe that it was. I do not believe that Hushai the archite was sinning and participating in this, nor do I believe David was asking him to sin and participating in this intelligence network. Think about for a moment the example of those in World War II, the Corrie Ten Boom's, that lied to the Germans about where the Jews were, knowing that their intent was to kill the Jews that they were hiding. Any, Jew, any Jews in this house? Well, I don't know any Jews in this house. They're not in this house. I mean, there's all kind of ways people get around it. You know, they were under the house. They weren't in there. I'm not, it's all deception. Let's just get it, let's get it out on the table. It's all deception. It was a lie. People lied. The Germans in that case weren't going to use the truth for good. They were going to use the truth to murder innocent people. In my view, in that case, they weren't entitled to the truth. Not only could they not handle the truth, as for Jack Nicholson, they weren't entitled to the truth in that case. By choosing to lie or to deceive, now follow me carefully on this because I don't want this misapplied. By choosing to lie or deceive, these people in Denmark and Belgium and Amsterdam and other places chose the greater good. The Hebrew midwives deceived, or lied if you prefer, to their Egyptian masters concerning the birth of male babies in Egypt. The Egyptian intent was to put all the male babies, male Jewish babies, to death. So they weren't going to use the truth that the Hebrew midwives told it to them for purposes of good, but for sinful purposes, exceedingly sinful purposes. 
so by choosing to deceive, they chose the greater good. Same thing with Rahab, the harlot. I don't think she'll be called Rahab the harlot in eternity. We'll probably just know her as Rahab. I think they'll be able to drop the harlot part. Let's hope so. Because we can put our name in whatever sinful pattern we have behind us, and I don't think we'd want that there either. Sarah the gossiper. If we were to talk about this in a formal way, if this was a class, a formal class on ethics, we would call the ethic that I've just described to you graded absolutism. I know that's a $100 word, $10,000 word perhaps, but, but follow me on this. Because this is so important to get this right so that it's not abused. This ethic called graded absolutism recognizes that there are higher and lower laws. We're talking about God's law. There are higher and lower laws. And when they conflict, the Christian has the responsibility to follow the higher of the two laws. And, that, and I'm not just pointing this out of thin air. Matthew, Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, 23, chides the Pharisees for following to the letter some aspects of the Mosaic law while neglecting what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. It could be explained this way. When faced with an ethical dilemma for which there seems no right answer, the believer is to choose the path of the greater good. Some, in discussing this ethical view, have, have I believe, purposely misrepresented this view as equating to moral relativism or situational ethics. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is not moral relativism. This is not situational ethics. This is the believer that's faced with a dilemma, a true dilemma. Now, some people will say there are no true dilemmas. There are no dilemmas. Let me give you, let me give you this as an illustration. Let's say we find out that there are 20 armed gunmen out here. And I hear them out there. And I go outside this room. There's 20 armed gunmen. I know that I've got 50, 60 members of my flock that I'm the under-shepherd of in here. I say, I want you all to be quiet. Don't say a word. I go out there and I say, is anybody in there? Knowing that they're going to come in here and blast everybody. What do you really think I ought to do? Now, I'm talking about deep down in the recesses of your soul. What would you really want me to do? Would you want me to say, no, there they are. And if God wants them protected, he can protect them. Now, that is one ethic. Augustine and other people held that. Some of my best friends hold that. But does that feel right to you in the deep recesses of your soul? Well, i got to tell you, it doesn't feel right to me. As your shepherd, I would say, no, there's nobody in there. They put a gun to you, is there anybody in there? No, there's nobody in there. Bang. You may have to pay the consequences of doing the greater good, but that would be the greater good. Or let's say you don't want to consider yourself. Let's say all the children of the church were in here. Let's say all the little bitty ones, all the ones from the nursery and primary and the junior departments, they're all in here. And you're out there. And you know they're going to kill everybody in here. Are you going to say, no, they're in there? Because I can't lie. Well, I propose to you that you're majoring in the minors and you're missing the big picture of love. Well, you don't have to agree with that. But I think that's the ethic that the Bible portrays. That's the only way that I believe, that I believe, that you can explain Rahab the harlot being blessed by lying to those that came looking for the Jewish spies. The Hebrew midwives were blessed for their behavior. 
Corey Tinboom, I think, did the right thing. This is not moral relativism or situational ethics. What's at stake here is not merely a desired end, which may or may not be subjective, but a higher law. These higher laws, among them justice, mercy, love, and fairness, are what Jesus was referring to when he talked about the weightier matters of the law. What's the greatest of all the commandments? The love, exactly. There is a greater commandment that's an umbrella over everything. When in doubt, do the thing that expresses the most love. Thankfully, most of us are never going to face a situation like Corey Tinbin did, or the one that I just illustrated. That's, hope none of us would ever face something like that. None of us are ever going to face something like Rahab faced, or the Jewish midwife faced. We should recognize, though, that to violate a command of God, weighty or not, is a serious thing. So this should never be taken lightly. It should never be taken as an opportunity for we just do whatever we want to do. No, that's not it at all. Sometimes we go through this, though, in a, oh, in a microscopically minuscule way compared to, say, Corey Tinder. Let's, let's say you have someone who's a, a mentally handicapped, and they have a new sweater and a new hairdo. But no matter how much you would dress them up, this, you know, the sweater may be older, the hairdo may not be what it ought to be. And they, they come in and they say, see, look at me. And they're so happy and they're so proud of the way that they look. And if they could speak, sometimes they can, sometimes they can. I visit a lot of homes. Because of the situation I grew up in, I visit a lot of homes where, where kids were this way. And since my kids were in a choir that ministered to homes like this, it was in this situation a lot of times, lots of times. And they would come up, they'd be so proud of a new coat that they had received or a new hat. And the ones that could speak, say, Do you, does my new hat make me look like Robert Redford? Oh, yeah. Boy, it does. Boy, you're so handsome, you ought to be on television. Is that the right thing to do? Or would the right thing to be to say, of course not. Of course that doesn't make you look like Robert Redford. Go look in the mirror. That's cool. Yeah, you'd be telling the truth, but that's cool. Now, that, that, again, I say that's a minuscule illustration compared to what Hushai the archive is going to do or what Rahab did or the Hebrew midwife. I hope you see my point. Hushai will purposely deceive Absalom for the greater good. Absalom was in rebellion against his father and against God. He intended to kill the Lord's anointed. In my view, Hushai does the right thing. So the chapter ends with Hushai and Absalom entering the city from different directions at the same time simultaneously. This is truly a painful episode for David. But at the very same time, it's a period where David is exhibiting spiritual 